while I'm on this roll, I'm going from the horror of the heights directly to the leather funnel. Uh, this is another of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's horror stories uh, published in 1929. It says, other calls it a novel, but it's part of the short story collection that will be linked to uh, this, the podcast description. Uh, if you've not heard one of these before, uh, please bear with me for the asides. It's part of how I think and communicate. Uh, if you want to reach me or suggest other public domain literature that you think would be cool to audiobook and make more widely known, uh, that is pretty much the premise of what I'm doing and reach out to me on Twitter at time of posting. I will be thrilled to know what else people would be interested to hear. Uh, but tonight, 2.12 in the morning on the... No, 18th. I said on the last one, uh, one month of the quarantine but now it is one month one day so wherever you're hearing this i hope that you are well and safely quarantined and we're about to get into another unknown conan doyle tale and it starts off right away by saying it takes place in paris so uh Forgive me if you know better than the pronunciations. Sometimes I'm just not going to try. The uh, My friend Lionel Dacker, or Decray, whatever, is the very start. D-A-C-R-E. So I'm just going to call him Dacker. Which I know is dead wrong. Please feel free to correct me or don't. I hope you'll enjoy the story if you listen to it, and if you want to read it, uh, and stop the chatter, uh, the link is with the podcast. So, The Leather Funnel. My friend, Lionel Dacker, lived in the Avenue de Wagram, Paris. His house was that small one, that small one you know, with the iron railings and grass plot in front of it, on the left-hand side as you pass down from the Arc de Triomphe. I fancied that it had been there long before the avenue was constructed, for the grey tiles were stained with lichens, and the walls were mildewed and discoloured with age. Oh, excuse me, because it's British, discoloured with a U. It looked a small house from the street, five windows in front, if I remember right, but it deepened into a single long chamber at the back. It was here that Dacker had that singular library of occult literature and the fantastic curiosities which served 
as a hobby for himself and as an amusement for his friends. A wealthy man of refined and eccentric tastes, a trope in stories like this, he had spent much of his life and fortune in gathering together what was said to be a unique private collection of Talmudic, Talmudic with a capital T, Kabbalistic with a lowercase c, and magical works, many of them of great rarity and value. And just, there's a little more of the description of him, but if you go to my podcast on H.P. Lovecraft's Horror at Red Hook, uh, which uh, there are things about that story to talk about, but uh, he throws out a few things of, like, says, was studying. He had a pamphlet of Kabbalah and mentioned something with Dr. Faustus. Like, uh, Lovecraft would be better off making up entirely his own uh, creatures and universe because uh, I hope someone called him on that. I hope someone called him on a lot of things about that story, which is the reason I recorded it. Uh, what I can pretty much guarantee is the first time you will ever hear that story on audiobook, and it hasn't been included in any modern collection for at least two very obvious reasons by the time you've finished it. But that is not the story we're in the middle of. So let's see if Conan Doyle is any better on Kabbalah uh, than HPL. His tastes leaned toward the marvelous and the monstrous, and I have heard that his experiments in the direction of the unknown have passed all the bounds of civilization and of decorum. Gasp. To his English friends, he never alluded to such matters and took the tone of the student and virtuoso, but a Frenchman whose tastes were of the same nature had assured me that the worst excesses of the black mass have been perpetrated in that large and lofty hall which is lined with the shelves of his books and the cases of his museum. Dacker's appearance was enough to show that his deep interest in these psychic matters was intellectual rather than spiritual. And just one word, if you're not aware of it, in later life, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, became very interested in spiritualism. And uh, in fact, on his uh, tombstone, because, you know, trivia, next time you're at the bar, uh, that it says something about spiritual. Epitaph. Okay. Patriot, physician, and man of letters, 22 May 1859, 7th of July 1930, and his beloved, his wife, 
Gene Conan Doyle reunited, ah, that's sweet, reunited 27 June, and some dick who took the picture uh, didn't bother to get rid of a clump of grass over the year that she died. So that remains a mystery. Um, Spiritual. There was no trace of asceticism upon his heavy face, but there was much mental force in his huge dome-like skull, which curved upward from amongst his thinning locks like a snow peak above its fringe of fir trees. His knowledge was greater than his wisdom, and his powers were far superior to his character. Zing. The small bright eyes buried deeply in his fleshy face, twinkled with intelligence and unabated curiosity of life, but they were the eyes of a sensualist and an egotist. Enough of the man, for he is dead now, poor devil, dead at the very time that he had, that he had made sure that he had at last discovered the elixir of life. Irony. It is not with his complex character that I have to deal, but with the very strange and inexplicable incident which had its rise in my visit to him in the early spring of the year 82, meaning 1882. Excuse me. And as a point of interest and influence, because I mentioned at the last, at the end of the last story, I'm very curious whether Lovecraft ever read the horror of the heights because it has a resemblance to the uh, the climax of the Call of Cthulhu. Uh, but I do know, and I'm curious if anybody knows or can find out Twitter at time of posting would love to know if there is any letter from H.P. Lovecraft mentioning Conan Doyle uh, at all, if he just, you know, wrote about him in any substance. Uh, But both of them actually uh, have said that they owe a lot to Edgar Allan Poe. And as they mentioned, the early spring of the year 82, for reference... It is interesting and easier to remember that Edgar Allan Poe died before the Civil War, which is uh, a lot of people, for whatever reason, you know, wouldn't think of him or place him there. Correct me if I'm wrong, if you gave it that much thought. But he really was from... Uh, the earlier part of that century in America. I think he died in 1840-ish, but we're just going to go back to the year 82. I hope you're enjoying the rambling or the story if you have switched over to just reading it. I had known Dacker in England for my researches in the Assyrian room of the British Museum had been conducted at the time when he was endeavoring to establish a mystic and esoteric meaning in the Babylonian tablets, and this community of interests had brought us together. 
chance remarks had led to daily conversation, and that to something verging upon friendship. I had promised him that on my next visit to Paris I would call upon him. At the time when I was able to fulfill my compact, I was living in a cottage in uh, Fontainebleau. Oh yeah, another uh, French. Uh, I'm just... It's spelled Frenchly, but Fontainebleau. And as the evening trains were inconvenient, he asked me to spend the night in his house. I have only that one spare couch, said he, pointing to a broad sofa in his large salon. I hope that you will manage to be comfortable there. It was a singular bedroom, with its high walls of brown volumes, but there could be no more agreeable furniture to a bookworm like myself, and there is no set... Incidentally, all the stuff I'm linking, like Gutenberg, you can get on your Kindle. If you like reading that way, you can find it through there, and uh, enjoy this and so much more literature uh, on whatever device uh, works for you. So, bookworms. And there is no scent so pleasant to my nostrils as that faint, subtle reek which comes from an ancient book. I assured him that I could desire no more charming chamber and no more congenial surroundings. If the fittings are neither convenient nor conventional, they are at least costly, said he, looking around at his shelves. I have expended nearly a quarter of a million of money. Doesn't say of what. Nearly a quarter of a million of money upon these objects which surround you. Books, weapons, gems, carvings, tapestries, images. There's hardly a thing here which has not its history, and it is generally one worth telling. He was seated as he spoke at one side of the open fireplace, and I at the other. His reading table was on his right, and the strong lamp above it ringed with a very vivid circle of golden light. A half-rolled palimpsest lay in the center, and around it were many quaint articles of bric-a-brac. One of these was a large funnel, such as is used for filling wine casks. It appeared to be made of black wood, and to be rimmed with discolored brass. That is a curious thing, I remarked. What is the history of that? Ah, said he, it is the very question upon which uh, I have had occasion to ask myself. I would give a good deal to know. Take it in your hands and examine it. I did so and found that what I had imagined to be wood was in reality leather, though age had dried it into an extreme hardness. It was a large funnel, and might hold a quart when full. The brass rim encircled the wide end, but the narrow was also tipped with metal. What do you make of it? asked Dacker. I should imagine that it belonged to some vinter or maltzer in the Middle Ages, said I. 
I have seen in England leather drinking flagons of the 17th century, blackjacks, as they were called, which were of the same color and hardness as this filler. I dare say the date would be about the same, said Dacker, and no doubt also it was used for filling a vessel with liquid. If my suspicions are correct, however, it was a queer vintner who used it, and a very singular cask which was filled. Do you observe nothing strange? There's no question mark here, but do you observe nothing strange at the spout end of the funnel? As I held it to the light, I observed that at a spot some five inches above the brass tip, the narrow neck of the leather funnel was all haggled and scored, as if someone had notched it round with a blunt knife. Only at that point was there any roughening of the dead black surface. Someone has tried to cut off the neck. Uh, trying to cut off the... Hang on, sorry, I'm just checking the time on the thing. Uh, would you call it a cut? It is torn and lacerated. It must have taken some strength to leave these marks on such tough material, whatever the instrument may have been. But what do you think of it? I can tell that you know more than you say. And right here, it's sort of, even if you didn't know the author, uh, this is written by the same person as Sherlock Holmes. So, uh... Obviously, Watson. Um, but what do you think of it? Um, whatever the instrument may have been. Sorry, the uh, this would also be easier to read on a Kindle from the spacing on the screen is just a bit weird with the long lines of the unformatted Gutenberg-y thing. Uh, what do you think of it? I can tell that you know more than you say. Dacker smiled, and his little eyes twinkled with knowledge. Have you included the psychology of dreams among your learned studies? I did not even know that there was such a psychology. My dear sir, that shelf above the gem case is filled with volumes, from Albertus Magnus onward, which deal with no other subject. It is a science in itself. A science of charlatans. The charlatan is always the pioneer. From the astrologer came the astronomer. From the alchemist, the chemist. From the mesmerist, the experimental psychologist. The quack of yesterday is the professor of tomorrow. Even such Subtle and elusive things as dreams will in time be reduced to system and order. When the time comes, the researches of our friends on the bookshelf yonder will no longer be the amusement of the mystic, but the foundations of a science. Supposing that is so, where is the science of dreams to do with a large, black, brass-rimmed funnel? I will tell you. You know that I have an agent who is always on the lookout for rarities and curiosities for my collection. Some days ago, he heard of a dealer upon one of the quays who had acquired some old rubbish found in a cupboard 
Uh, that and some other names coming up here are French place names, which if you're reading the story, you can look up and see where they are. But uh, it's not relevant to the story except for place setting, so I'm not going to sidetrack on it. One of the quays who had acquired some old rubbish found in a cupboard in an ancient house at the back of the Rue Mathurin in the Quartier Latin. The dining room of this old house is decorated with a coat of arms, chevrons, and bars rouge upon a field argent, which, and that, if you're not familiar with the language there or what he's talking about, that's like a shield or family coat of arms. Argent means silver as a heraldic tincture. It's like in, uh, if you know Game of Thrones, uh, where all the different houses have their symbols and stuff. He's describing uh, one of those. Um, Bars rouge upon field argent, which prove upon inquiry uh, to be the shield of Nicholas de la Rainey, a high official of King Louis XIV. I kid, that, that one I know, it's Louis XIV. Uh, there can be no doubt the other articles in the cupboard date back to the early days of that king. The inference is, therefore, that they were all the property of this Nicholas de la Rainey, who was, as I understand, the gentleman specially concerned with the maintenance and execution of the draconic laws of that epoch. What then? And what now? Okay, still got the time. Uh, I would ask you now... To take the funnel into your hands once more, and to examine the upper brass rim. Can you make out any lettering upon it? There were certainly some scratches upon it, almost obliterated by time. The general effect was of several letters, the last of which bore some resemblance to a B. You make it a B? Yes, I do. So do I. In fact, I have no doubt whatever that it is a B. But the nobleman you mentioned would have had R for his initial. Exactly. That's the beauty of it. He owned this curious object, and yet he had someone... Your assumption. And yet he had someone else's initials upon it. Why did he do this? I can't imagine. Can you? Well, I might, uh, perhaps guess. Do you observe something drawn a little further along the rim? I should say it was a crown. It is undoubtedly a crown, but if you examine it in a good light, you'll convince yourself that it is not an ordinary crown. It is a heraldic crown, a badge of rank, and it consists of an alternation of four pearls and strawberry leaves, the proper badge of a marquise, uh, or marquis. We may infer, therefore, that the person whose initials end in B was entitled to wear that coronet. Then this common leather filler belonged to a marquis? 
Dacker gave a peculiar smile. Or to some member of the family of a marquis, said he. So much we have clearly gathered from this engraved rim. But what has all this to do with dreams? I do not know whether it was from a look upon Dacker's face or from some subtle suggestion in his manner, but a feeling of repulsion, of unreasoning horror, came upon me as I looked at the gnarled old lump of leather. I have more than once received important information through my dreams, said my companion in the didactic manner which he loved to affect. I make it a rule now when I am in doubt upon any material point to place the article in question beside me as I sleep and to hope for some enlightenment. The process does not appear to me to be very obscure, though it has not yet received the blessing of orthodox science. According to my theory, any object which has been intimately associated with any supreme paroxysm, uh, and I'm near the end of the tape, but I'm not going to sidebar from this crazy rant to define this, only to note that I'll scrabble word P-A-R-O-X-Y-S-M. Any supreme paroxysm of human emotion, whether it be joy or pain, will retain a certain atmosphere or association which it is capable of communicating to a sensitive mind. By a sensitive mind, I do not mean an abnormal one, but such a trained and educated mind as you or I possess. You mean, for example, that if I slept beside that old sword upon the wall... I might dream of some bloody incident in which that very sword took part. An excellent example, for as a matter of fact, that sword was used in that fashion by me, and I saw in my sleep the death of its owner, who perished in a brisk skirmish, which I have been unable to identify, but which occurred at the time of the wars of the Frondists. I'm gonna just get that too. Uh... If that's capital F, frondists, if you think of it, uh, some of our popular observances show that the fact has already been recognized by our ancestors, although we, in our wisdom, have classed it among superstitions. For example, and that is a good moment to flip the desk, as I'm calling it, but first, paroxysm. A sudden attack or violent expression of a particular emotion or activity, P-A-R-O-X-Y-S-M, in the same time and in some of the home stories, they also use the archaic, uh, uh, what's it called, thesaurus, also a word for exclamation, which is ejaculation. Uh, whenever, you know, Watson is surprised and he ejaculated suddenly. Uh, just, you know, for that. Fronde, uh, was, uh, uh, whatever, was a series of civil wars in France between 1648 and 1653, occurring in the midst of the Franco-Spanish War, which had begun in 1635, uh, King Louis, that background, hopefully, 
this time it will save the record unlike the trouble i had with the horror of the heights uh and it is 2:38 a.m. i'm going to keep trucking on and hopefully i will in any case be with you shortly right after the sound effect Leather Funnel Part 2 starting at 2:41 a.m. fuck 31 a.m. 18th of April For example awful example coming up in a sack uh excuse me star the usual stomach or heartburn pardon um well the placing of the bride's cake beneath the pillow in order that the sleeper may have pleasant dreams which sounds like a waste of cake and uh unnecessary trouble uh extra trouble with the batting but to each their own um some people want to have their cake some people want to eat it too and some people apparently want to put it under the pillow for the cake fairy that is one of several instances which you will find set forth in a small brochure which i am myself oh right the the character which i am myself writing upon the subject but to come back to the point i slept one night with this funnel beside me and i had a dream which certainly throws a curious light upon its use and origin what did you dream i dreamed he paused and a look of intent look of interest came over his massive face by jove that's well thought of said he This really will be an exceedingly interesting experiment. You are yourself a psychic subject with nerves which respond readily to any impression. I have never tested myself in that direction. Then we shall test you tonight. Might I ask you a very great favor when you occupy that couch tonight to sleep with this old funnel placed by the side of your pillow? The request seemed to me a grotesque one, but I have myself in my complex nature a hunger after all which uh is bizarre and fantastic. I had not the faintest belief in Dacker's theory nor any hopes for success in such an experiment. Yet it amused me that the experiment should be made Dacker with great gravity drew a small stand to the head of my settee and placed the funnel upon it. Then, after a short conversation, he wished me good night and left me. I sat for some little time, smoking by the smoldering fire, and turning over in my mind the curious incident which had occurred. and the strange experience which might lie before me skeptical as i was 
There was something impressive in the assurance of Dacre's manner and my extraordinary surroundings, the huge room with the strange and often sinister objects which were hung round it, struck struck solemnity into my soul. Finally, I undressed, and turning out the lamp, I lay down. After long tossing, I fell asleep. Let me try to describe as accurately as I can the scene which came to me in my dreams. It stands out now in my memory more clearly than anything which I have seen with my waking eyes. There was a room which bore the appearance of a vault. Four spandrels, and that one I gotta jump to because that's, you know, spans or cubits. Uh, Spandrel, the almost triangular space between one side of the outer curve of an arch, a wall, and the ceiling or framework. No kidding. Cool. Four spandrels from the corners ran up to join a sharp, cup-shaped roof. The architecture was rough, but very strong. It was evidently part of a great building. Three men in black, with curious, top-heavy black velvet hats, sat in a line upon a red-carpeted dais. Their faces were very solemn and sad. On the left stood two long-gowned men with port-folios in their hands, which seemed to be stuffed with papers. Upon the right, looking toward me, was a small woman with blonde hair and singular light blue eyes, the eyes of a child. She was past her first youth, but could not yet be called middle-aged. Uh, also, uh, I should do the boilerplate thing at the start, but because I'm reading something that was written a long time ago, unless it drops a specific racial slur. I'm reading stuff as it is, and sometimes we may encounter uh, stuff that uh, pre-pre-me too uh, might be objectifying uh, and other such stuff. So, let's see. Her figure was inclined to stoutness, and her bearing was proud and confident. Her face was pale but serene. It was a curious face, comely and yet feline, with a subtle suggestion of cruelty about the straight, strong little mouth and chubby jaw. She was draped in some sort of loose white gown. Beside her stood a thin, eager priest who whispered in her ear and continually raised a crucifix before her eyes. She turned her head and looked fixedly past the crucifix at the three men in black who were, I felt, her judges. As I gazed, the three men stood up and said something, but I could distinguish no words, though I was aware that it was the central one who was speaking. Then they swept out of the room, followed by the two men with the papers. At the same instant, several rough-looking fellows in stout jerkins came bustling in 
and removed first the red carpet and then the boards which formed the dais so as to entirely clear the room. When the screen was removed, I saw some singular articles of furniture behind it. One looked like a bed with wooden rollers at each end and a winch handle to regulate its length. Another was a wooden horse. There were several other curious objects and a number of swinging cords which played over pulleys. It was not unlike a modern gymnasium. When the room had been cleared, there appeared a new figure upon the scene. This was a tall, thin person, clad in black, with a gaunt and austere face. The aspect of the man made me shudder. His clothes were all shining with grease and mottled with stains. He bore himself with a slow and impressive dignity, as if he took command of all things from the instant of his entrance. In spite of his rude appearance and sordid dress, it was now his business, his room, his to command. He carried a coil of light ropes over his left forearm. The lady looked him up and down with a searching glance, but her expression was unchanged. It was confident, even defiant, but it was very different with the priest. His face was ghastly white, and I saw the moisture glisten and run on his high, sloping forehead. He threw up his hands in prayer, and he stooped continually to mutter frantic words in the lady's ear. The man in black now advanced, and taking one of the cords from his left arm, he bound the woman, woman's hands together. She held them meekly toward him as he did so. Then he took her arm with a rough grip and led her toward the wooden horse, which was little higher than her waist. Onto this she was lifted and laid with her back upon it, and her face to the ceiling, while the priest, quivering with horror, had rushed out of the room. The woman's lips were moving rapidly, and though I could hear nothing, I knew that she was praying. Her feet hung down on either side of the horse, and I saw that the rough varlets in attendance had fastened cords to her ankles, and secured the other ends to iron rings on the stone floor. My heart sank within me as I saw these ominous preparations, and yet I was held by the fascination of horror, and I could not take my eyes from the strange spectacle. A man had entered the room with a bucket of water in either hand. Another followed with a third bucket. They were laid beside the wooden horse. The second man had a wooden dipper, a bowl with a straight handle, in his other hand. This he gave to the man in black. At the same moment, one of the varlets approached with a dark object in his hand, which even in my dream filled me with a vague feeling of familiarity. It was a leathern filter. With horrible energy, he thrust it, but I could stand no more. My hair stood on end with horror. 
I writhed, I struggled, I broke through the bonds of sleep, uh, and I burst with a shriek into my own life and found myself lying shivering with terror in the huge library with the moonlight flooding the window, uh, through the window and throwing strange silver and black traceries upon the opposite wall. Oh, what a blessed relief to feel that every limb my mind divided between to feel that I was back in the 19th century, back out of that medieval vault into a, there's a A that maybe shouldn't be in that word, medieval vault, into a world where men had human hearts within their bosoms. I sat up on my couch, trembling in every limb, my mind divided between thankfulness and horror. To think that such things were ever done, that they could be done without God striking the villains dead. Was it all a fantasy, or did it really stand for something which had happened in the black, cruel days of the world's history? Question mark. I sank my throbbing head upon my shaking hands, and then suddenly my heart seemed to stand still in my bosom, and I could not even scream, so great was my terror. Something was advancing toward me through the darkness of the room. It is a horror coming upon a horror which breaks a man's spirit. I could not reason, I could not pray, I could only sit like a frozen image and glare at the dark figure which was coming down the room. And then it moved out into the white lane of moonlight and I breathed once more. It was Dacker and his face showed that he was as frightened as myself. "'Was that you? For God's sake, what's the matter?' he asked in a husky voice. "'Oh, Dacker, I am glad to see you. I have been down into hell. It was dreadful.' "'Then it was you who screamed?' "'I dare say it was.' "'It rang through the house. The servants were all terrified.' He struck a match and lit the lamp. I think we may get the fire to burn up again, he added, throwing some logs upon the embers. Good God, my dear chap, how white you are. You look as if you had seen a ghost. So I have several ghosts. The leathern funnel has acted then? I wouldn't sleep near the infernal thing again for all the money you could offer me. Dacker chuckled. I expected that you would have a lively night of it, said he. You took it out of me in return, for that scream of yours wasn't a very pleasant sound at two in the morning. I suppose it is 2.55 as I record this in the morning. Because time now... (laughs) Uh, I suppose from what you say that you have seen the whole dreadful business. What dreadful business? The torture of the water. The extraordinary question, as it was called in the genial days of Le Roy Soleil, Soleil, whatever, the royal, the sun king. Did you stand it out to the end? No, thank God, I awoke before it really began. Ah, It is just as well for you. I held out till the third bucket. Well, it is an old story, 
and they are all in their graves now, anyhow, so what does it matter how they got there? I suppose that you have no idea what it was that you have seen. The torture of some criminal. She must have been a terrible malefactor indeed, if her crimes are in proportion to her penalty. Well, we have that small consolation, said Dacker, wrapping his dressing gown round him and crouching closer to the fire. They were in proportion to her penalty. That is to say, if I am correct in the lady's identity. How could you possibly know her identity? For answer, Dacker took down an old vellum-covered volume from the shelf. Just listen to this, said he. It is the French of the 17th century, but I will give a rough translation as I go. You will judge for yourself whether I have solved the riddle or not. The prisoner was brought before the grand chambers and tournelles of Parliament, sitting at a court, as a court of justice, charged with the murder of Master Drew de Aubrey, her father and of her two brothers, Madame de Aubrey, one being civil lieutenant and the other a councillor of parliament. In person, it seemed hard to believe that she had really done such wicked deeds, for she was of a mild appearance. Mercy, mercy, what? Mercy, I was thinking earlier. Mercy was Mercy Lewis. I was trying to remember. Uh, Salem Witch Trials. Uh, quite a story. Uh, for another time. Uh, but it came up while I was talking with someone earlier about rye bread and the Salem Witch Trials. Um, his part of the country... Sounds like things are still pretty quiet in uh, Pennsylvania. But, uh, murder of mild appearance and of short stature with a fair skin and blue eyes. Yet the court, having found her guilty, condemned her to the ordinary and to the extraordinary question in order that she, in order that she might be forced to name her accomplices after which she should be carried in a cart to the place de greve there to have her head cut off her body being afterward burned and her ashes scattered to the winds the date of this entry is july 16 1676 it is interesting, said I, but not convincing. How do you prove the two women to be the same? I am coming to that. The narrative goes on to tell of the woman's behavior when questioned. When the execution... She pulled out her big brass funnel, this leather funnel with her initials on it. It's uh, a little less of a science of deduction than Holmes. I'll say that. Uh, I'm coming to that. The narrative. When the executioner approached her, she recognized him by the cords which he held in his hands 
and she at once held out her own hands to him, looking at him from head to foot without uttering a word. How's that? Yes, it was so. She gazed without wincing upon the wooden horse and rings which had twisted so many limbs and caused so many shrieks of agony. When her eyes fell upon the three pails of water, which were all ready for her, she said with a smile, All that water must have been brought here for the purpose of drowning me, Monsieur. They have, you have no idea, I trust, of making a person of my small stature swallow it all. Shall I read the details of the torture? No, for heaven's sake, don't. Here's a sentence which must, must surely show you that what is here recorded is the very scene which you have gazed upon tonight. The good Abbot Perrault, unable to contemplate the agonies which were suffered by his penitent, had hurried from the room. Does that convince you? It does entirely. There can be no question that it's indeed the same event. But uh, who, then, is this lady whose appearance was so attractive and whose end was so horrible? For answer, Dacker came across to me and placed the small lamp upon the table uh, which stood by my bed. Lifting up the ill-omened filler, he turned the brass rim so that the light fell upon it. Seen in this way, the engraving seemed clearer than on the night before. We have already agreed that this is the badge of a marquis or a marquise, said he. We have also settled that the last letter is B. It is undoubtedly so. I now suggest to you that the other letters from left to right are M, M, a small d, A, a small d, and then the final B. Yes, I'm sure that you're right. I can make out the other two small d's quite plainly. What I have read to you tonight, said Dacker, is the official record of the trial of Marie-Madeleine de Abray, Marquise de Brinvilliers, one of the most famous prisoners and murderers of all time. I sat in silence, overwhelmed, and I'm going to Google this to see if there was any such person, or... Well, what do you know? Huh. Okay, this was a famous person he's thrown into everything. Uh, July 22nd, 1630, to July 17th, 1676, five days before her birthday of her 46th year. Interesting. 46? Yeah, that looks right. Uh, okay. Well, interesting. Uh, one of the most famous poisoners and murderers of all time. I sat in silence, overwhelmed at the extraordinary nature of the incident, and at the completeness of the proof with which da like uh, the Armstrong Partington, the last story, all over again, uh, with which Dacker had exposed its real meaning. In a vague way, I remembered some details of the woman's career, her unbridled debauchery, the cold-blooded and protracted torture of her sick father. Google it. I'll have to after the story, but if you're interested, this is a real person. You can Google her. Uh, and you can look in the story 
and uh, note future Adam uh, put a link to her Wikipedia in here make it easy for anybody curious to look her up because it's spelled in French and it has Marquise and Brinvilliers probably or Brinvillier don't do that to people uh, it'll be in the description with the podcast um I sat in silence, overwhelmed at the extraordinary nature of the incident and at the completeness of the proof with which Dacker had exposed its real meaning. In a vague way, I remembered some details of the woman's career, her, excuse me, her unbridled debauchery, the cold-blooded and protracted torture of her sick father, the murder of her brothers for murder, motives of petty gain. I recollected also that the bravery of her end had done something to atone for the horror of her life, and that all Paris had sympathized with her last moments, and blessed her as a martyr within a few days of the time when they had cursed her as a murderess. One objection, and one only, occurred to my mind. How came her initials and her badge of rank upon the filler? Surely they did not carry their medieval homage homage to the nobility to the point of decorating instruments of torture with their initials. I was puzzled with the same point, said Dacker, who clearly has too much time on his hands. But it admits of a simple explanation. The case excited extraordinary interest at the time, and nothing could be more natural than that La Rainie, the head of the police, should retain this filler as a grim souvenir. It was, and I do know that French word, it means a uh, souvenir, I think literally means memory. Uh, It was not often that a marchioness of France underwent the extraordinary question. That he should engrave her initials upon it for the information of others was surely a very ordinary proceeding upon his part for, you know, this extraordinary thing. And this, I asked, pointing to the marks upon the leathern neck. She was a cruel tigress, said Dacker as he turned away. I think it is evident that like other tigresses, her teeth were both strong and sharp. Okay. Well, there we are. There's another of them. Uh, Tiger King is still a thing in the time that this is being recorded. So uh, I would say eat your heart out, Carol, but I don't want her to get ideas. So once again, as always with these, I hope you've enjoyed the story Uh, And link to this woman's Wikipedia page will be with the uh, podcast. And if you want to reach me or suggest other things to read that are public domain and might be interesting now that people have time on their hands for reading, uh, hit me up on Twitter 
at time of posting. Uh, and in whatever case, I hope that you are well, you are safe, and that you stay that way. Zygazent.